This episode of Upzones is brought to you by Horizon Books, serving Seattle's book-loving community for 48 years with one of the best collections of used books in the region. Check out Horizon Books down a little wooden hallway next to Numo's on 10th in Capitol Hill. And while you're there, mention Upzones to the register for a 10% discount today, tomorrow, and for the rest of 2018. Our sponsor is Horizon Books, and this is Upzones. You have to elect yourself daily. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself. Things are changing. You elect yourself. You elect yourself. So we've been doing this about a year and a half now. Well, really just a year. Uh, but we're midway through our second season, and you know there's some learning curves that happen when you try to do a show like this, especially on a shoestring budget, not part of some bigger radio station. It's not anyone's day job. And one of the things we've really made a lot of strides on, but also, you know, frankly, there's a lot of learning left to do is with the sound. Um, so we 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 have two mics that we set up for our guests. We use what we call lavalier mics or lav mics, those plug in. You've seen them when uh, commentators use them. They'll plug in right into your button lapel and you, they they capture sound really well, but it's a little bit garbled in the sense that it, and sometimes it's, it's ideal for maybe a radio or, or video and can sometimes sound like someone's on the phone. Conversely, you know, there's there's uh, what we call a Yeti mic and that's just a very high quality mic that sits on the, handy table that I built for the show. And that's how we do our interviews is uh, we really, well, that's how we capture a lot of the warmth really anyway, and a lot of the sound and the tone. And it actually makes it feel like it's in a room. Well, one of the problems with the Yeti is, as you've heard, if you're a regular listener at all, we pick every other sound up in addition to the interview. So we're in a busy space. We're underneath a little wooden hallway that uh, you know, constantly has little hand carts being trucked up and down it. Uh, guests will tap or pound the table to make a point. Every now and again, guests will, uh, guests in the store, uh, customers will come in and start talking to us in the back room where we record. So there's just a real, there's just, there's just a real risk of all this ambient sound. So for this episode this week, we tried something and it didn't work. We tried to hold the Yeti in a certain way as to remove that. And what we ended up doing was corrupting the file. So all we got of this amazing interview with uh, Aaron Bur- Burkhalter of the South Seattle Emerald is the, the lav mics. So what you're going to hear today is just something that's a little tinny. That's the word I'm looking for, tinny. It sounds like maybe he called me on the phone. He didn't. He was sitting right there. It doesn't impact any any ability to understand or, or hear, in my opinion. It just... It's not as rich of an experience, and, and I'm really sorry about that. That sits with me as a producer of the show. But I, I think you'll enjoy Aaron's interview, and I think that'll make up for it. He's stepping in nobly uh, just as a, a, an interim managing editor for the South Seattle Emerald after a lot of time with Real Change Seattle as well. And he's uh, really just got some great thoughts and, and perspectives on what media should be in a city changing as rapidly and is in, in as many different facets and different dimensions as Seattle is. Uh, so, yeah, without further ado, check out Aaron Burkhalter. Yeah, thanks for coming. 
appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, uh, we're just glad to get, we try to focus on journalists. I have this mission of sort of understanding the changes and being the arbiter of, not the arbiter, that's wrong, but journalists are kind of the arbiter of what's happening, right? So I don't know if you've noticed, is this a unique time in terms of change or is it just always like this in the city? In terms of like, in terms of what you're seeing in the city specifically, I, I mean, just things being different today. Oh yeah, just than they what were yesterday, like, right? I, su- I mean, it's such a big question. I mean, things. I mean, I, I feel like Seattle is is really a different city, and I'm I'm not necessarily someone who inherently assumes that if it's new, it's bad. But you know, the Seattle that I grew up in and the Seattle today, it's. I mean, it's. They're not the same. It's not the same at all. I mean, even um, I lived in Ballard around 2004. I mean, even Ballard, and I've lived in Seattle since I was 13. Even Ballard of 2004 is completely, completely different than Ballard is today. You grew up, you lived in Ballard uh, growing up, high school? No, I I actually grew up in Wedgwood in Lake City. Okay. uh, What was that like in the 90s? You know, it it was... uh, it was really different because I remember in the 90s in, in Lake City and Wedgwood, and I think this is to this it's still true to an extent, particularly in Lake City, I felt like, you know, the economic diversity of the area was like a lot stronger. Like you'd go one block into the next block and, and you'd have, you know, higher end house next to, you know, apartments and, and so forth. And I, I felt like it was much more economically diverse at that time that I was there. But I was also you know, high schooler and not super civically aware. So it is funny how that happens, right? You don't really get that awareness until you're out, but you're been, you've been baked by your circumstances. And a lot of times you don't know you're being baked. Yeah. (laughs) You're just sort of a subject to the, yeah. How you grew up. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I even, even, even Lake city way, I mean, my old haunts were uh, a comic book shop called psycho five and uh, a little record shop and antiques and I mean antiques like lunchboxes and Star Wars action figures, Whoa. antiques uh, called Cranium Cool Collectibles. And I mean, that's the Lake City I remember. And that's gone. That's all gone. So, yeah. yeah. That's too bad. That yeah. was kind of like a Seattle, that, that was a Seattle life. It was a, that, was, that was just part of the, the day-to-day. It was these weird little shops and, yeah. you know, somebody selling stuff that could have been found in a garage, but maybe had a lot of value to somebody. I, I mean, my high school life was was spent hanging around used record shops and yeah. and you know, you know little strange places like that. I still walk by neighborhoods and go, oh, there used to be a great record shop like right there, and it's uh, not there anymore. Yeah. It's like a you know whatever it is now. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, a little more change. Yeah. So and it's then, just changed massively. It's yeah. changed massively in 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 so many different ways. Right. And you've ridden that wave now. Well, first, uh, did you grew up with your folks, both both folks. In the house yeah. and yeah, yeah. grew grew up in uh, with my parents in in Lake City and then Wedgwood. So yeah, yeah, and uh, and you've lived pretty much in the Pacific Northwest most of your life. Yeah, one way or the other, as far north as Mount Vernon when I was working at the Skagit Valley Herald, and then uh, I went to school at the University of Oregon for my journalism degree. Tell me about Skagit Valley. Skagit Valley is uh, I don't know it was, it was an amazing place. Um, uh, it was a really great place to kind of start out as a journalist at, a, at the daily newspaper up there. And you just have this mix of the agricultural world, um, a lot, uh, just a very large uh, immigrant community, mm-hmm. migrant, a lot of migrant farm workers right, there. Right. Um, what we're hearing from actually from one of our guests this, this season on the show is that climate change is disrupting the migrant 
there, there's been a pretty set schedule. You mm-hmm. hit this valley this time of year and this other plateau this other time of year. And because of climate change, you're seeing that to get disrupted as to when the, the picking is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and there, you know, what's interesting is there's a lot of, uh, up in Skagit County, there's, there's a lot of like really hardcore environmentalists in, in different kinds of brands from more radical, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. um, kind of disruptive environments, right. environmentalists all the way to like very consumer based environmentalists where people have these like completely green, yeah. um, eco houses with grass roots. Also known as my wife. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, there you go. So I have that like, yeah, no, and we have that unlock. Um, so yeah, so you're out there, you're like, what, 21? No, I was actually a little bit older because I, I went to UW originally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I, and I majored in psychology and I honestly floundered a little bit. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. As and, you do, yeah. Happens, yeah, and I didn't, yeah. I didn't know, I didn't, I, I knew I didn't want to go into psych research and I, I just kind of was one of those people that it just, I, I thought I was going in a direction that made sense and then it stopped making sense. And so I was kind of redirecting and I started freelance writing for a local website called Notamucho. Uh, and I think they're still around notamucho.com and started just doing music writing for them and did a few interviews and some record reviews. And then I was like, journalism is what I want to do. So I ended up looking for a program where I could get in and out really quick. And the nearest, fastest program I could get in and out really quick with as minimal student debt as I could was the University of Oregon. Okay. Oh, so, so you were down there for a while. Yeah. I was down there How was that? Bad. Oh, it was, I, I love Eugene. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I try to, I, I want to go visit there every couple of years if I can. I, I don't get down there as much as I like. And the journalism program was, was really interesting. Uh, at that time, I felt like it was really straddling kind of more of a old school print newspaper, print magazine, uh, format to kind of recognizing what journalism was going to look like what in the coming. future. Yeah, what yeah. was coming. And, you know, it was just a couple of years before the, you know, just, three or four years before the recession that just, you know, decimated the media scene mm-hmm. in my, in my view. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of people there didn't, didn't really know what was coming. So. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, and then uh, Oregon, fun fact, Oregon is the only state with a two-sided flag. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. They have a seal <laughs> on one side and a beaver on the other. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. All right. Anyway, that has nothing to do with journalism, but it's just a uh, little thing that I picked up recently. So you're kind of doing that for a while. You're, you're getting your chops. You're probably doing a lot of writing yeah. in school. Yeah. And then, so then you, now you, then you go up to Skagit Valley and you're covering, were you covering like a particular beat or just kind of general? Politics? Yeah. I took a stop at the Port Orchard Independent and was there for just a little bit over a year oh, wow. covering education and city hall and then i landed at the skagit herald i actually wanted to cover education like that was kind of my what i was really excited about mm-hmm. um and i sh- came up and they said no you're going to cover uh social services uh the environment nonprofits, and health and it ended up being just like the perfect beat i, I loved it because uh, you know we were we were right when i got there that was when you know the great recession hit it was when legislators were holding uh, public town halls on the Affordable Care Act. Um, oh, and it wow. was just okay. like a really big transitional time. Is where that in the 8th? In the congressional district? There? Or? Oh, I'm so bad with numbers. Well, who was the congressman? Um, uh, uh, Rick Larson. Oh, it was Larson. Oh, yeah. that's not the 8th. I don't know. That might be the. Yeah, well, we'll have to look that up. <laughs> I'm terrible with numbers. I have yeah. to look it up. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, because, you know, I know, I know that there's, you know, there's some of those the undercurrents can be pretty conservative. And so I imagine there was some real anger. I mean, if that's, if, that, if that's the town halls for 
Affordable Care Act, there was probably yeah. some real drama in, in some of those town halls. Yeah, there definitely was. Um, you know, it hadn't, it, it, you know, it wasn't like 2016 vitriol, but, you know, it, it, there was there was heated debate. Well, that's what laid the um, seeds, I think, for 2016, that's yeah. 2010. Yeah. And that's where you saw, I, I kind of mentioned that, that, that range of kind of the, the radical to quite conservative mm. that was up there and you walked into that room and that they all showed up. Um, and so, uh, you know, I remember getting people kind of bending my ear a lot about single payer versus, mm-hmm, you know, all mm-hmm, of that. Mm-hmm. And those were really, you know, people came out for those and, uh, they were really quite something. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. And then how long, did you, how long did you stick around there? I was there about three and a half years, mm-hmm. I think. I came down to real change in 2011. Gotcha. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So you've been there quite a, a long time. I was there about seven years. Yeah. And you, or you, you had been there, excuse me, and you've now more recently moved into a leadership role with the South Seattle Emerald. Yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. About the Emerald? Yeah. Yeah, well, um, I, I came on, uh, and I really like to be really clear about this, is, is not to replace Marcus Harrison Green. He's the founder, right. and he, you know, was really the heart and soul of that organization. Uh, uh, yeah, th- he understood. He's yeah. really well-known, well-beloved. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and so my job really there is really to focus on the news. So, I, you know, I, I, it's important to me to not be like the public face I of see. South Seattle Emerald. It's, it's really, you know, wanting it to be a community-run, mm-hmm. community-based organization. And so it's just... It's a fantastic place. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, I, I say place. I mean, it's a, it's a mobile newsroom. You know, we, you know, writers and, uh, folks meet in coffee shops and, uh, the Hillman City Collaboratory, wherever I we I love can. that place. Yeah. Is, oh, is, the collab is great. Is there an office proper or is it just 100% mobile? It's 100% mobile. Wow. There's no office That's uh, great. right now. And, you know, yeah, just a, just a very cool organization that, you know, really has, you know, it's just a, a live heart to it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's great. And so, yeah. How, how did your work at Real Change prepare you now to be? Because you're kind of you're responsible at the end of the day for getting this thing live and getting mm-hmm. this thing out all the time and uh, making sure the coverage reflects the community. So, you know, maybe talk a little bit about how those two are related. You know, the Skagit Valley Herald, even though it was trying to do a lot of online work, was very much like uh, kind of uh, in the daily newspaper world still. I mean, everything was kind of still thought of in terms of what goes on the front page, what goes on the inside. And when I came to the Scott, when I came from the Skagit Valley Herald to Real Change, this was my first foray into nonprofit journalism. And it was really my first step into like more community based, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. uh, advocacy journalism right. and, you know, journalism that that really works to have a relationship, uh, with people. Not, not that, you know, and not that there's that other publications aren't void of relationship, but really kind of putting that front and center and really thinking about that. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a it was of course you know I I was familiar from my reporting at the Skagit Valley Herald. You know, I had some understanding and experience with learning about homelessness, but you know, real change was kind of the crash course. And because at real change, you not only see like the policy side of it when you're reporting and trying to you know understand, you know, what, what is it that, what is this bill that Lisa Herbold has brought for? Right, what is right. Shama Sawant trying to do? And you see that policy side or understanding what all home is doing or what these agencies are doing, but then you see it 
on the other side with the vendors. You kind of you you kind of you you see the policy and the in the policymakers and the people that are, you know, coming up trying to come up with these solutions, and then and then you see well, where does it land with you know vendors who are experiencing homelessness. When you say vendors, you mean the vendors of yeah the, the vendors for the for the listener yeah yeah the vendors the you know real change you know people buy the paper um, and and the, the vendors aren't all homeless um, there's you know a variety of experiences but most of them have experienced homelessness at one time mm-hmm. and uh, they buy the paper for 60 cents they sell it for two dollars and so we would see you know a policy good and put in place like rapid rehousing um, and you know cities going forward with rapid rehousing this is the new solution this is the thing that's kind of we're really jumping on and then we'd be able to hear from vendors what their direct experience was with rapid rehousing right interesting for good or for ill and then there are probably some folks writing about rapid rehousing as well Right. In, yeah. in the content of the of the of the yes. of the paper, yeah, they're absolutely. writing about it. So we're writing about it. We're hearing about it from vendors. We're seeing how it. Yeah. yeah it, it, it's it's very. It goes full circle. I mean, and I should say it goes full circle because really, the, the, it's it's not even just the reporting and then the experience with vendors, but there's the advocacy as well. They have a, they have an advocacy department. Uh, vendors participate in uh, going to city hall, and mm-hmm. so it really it, it just had like kind of the full breadth and circle of it, and yeah. And so, yeah, I, th- I think that experience and that work really did uh, prepare me for, you know, and, and not, I'll put it this way, it really gave me like that really strong sense and strong urgency behind community-based journalism mm-hmm. um, and why nonprofit journalism that isn't beholden to advertising yeah. and is very community-based and has like the, not only the readership support of the community, but, but the financial support of the community is so right. important. I would say you just got to keep the lights on, but in fact, you don't even have to keep the lights on. <laughs> yeah, we don't. Yeah, <laughs> just gotta and, keep the website running, really. Yeah, I mean, luckily that's my only problem. I, I let the board, uh, or we have a board of director, very active board of directors that kind of handles all that other stuff. But yeah, we 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 there's not literal lights to worry about right mm-hmm. now. More, you know, just making sure we can find coffee shops that are open when we need them. So, so strategically, you know, I, I, I'm a former journalist myself, mm-hmm. so I come when I was very young, uh, 21, 22, 23, decided I wanted to get more engaged in the political system. So I left. But in those years, my experience was there's a point of view, whether it's the New York Times or, uh, you know, Real Change or The Nation or Fox News, there's, there may be a political point of view, but that's less interesting to me. There's a point of view about what the readership, the executive director, the, the uh, managing editor, the editor-in-chief are making decisions about what the readership wants, what kind mm-hmm. of coverage they want. Right. And then that shapes coverage because if there's, you know, for me, if there's an FCC hearing, well, we're going to go because for that's what I covered and that's what my management thought the readers wanted to know about. Um, I'm curious kind of what is the point of view? And again, it's not a, it's not a political per se and left, right per se, any of that. It's just like, what is it that you see the community as benefiting from uh, in, in as much as you're covering it? At the Emerald? Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, when when Marcus kind of had brought me on, he gave me four questions to ask about. Basically, is it an Emerald story? And the four questions are basically: Is it happening in South Seattle? Mm-hmm. Does it involve somebody from South Seattle? Does it affect South End, the South End, and uh, or is its viewpoint uh, resonant or or would be of interest, significant interest to people in the South End? Um, and I find that that really helps, you know, when, when story pitches come in or when reporters are like, hey, we want to cover this, it really helps to like run through those things. But really what the Emerald is about is that 
South End has been South End and South King County have been really underserved. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, they haven't been really represented. You know, really where it started and came from was uh, Marcus and, and his family. Even just looking at how specific stories were being reported out in other media outlets and feeling like it just wasn't reflective of the community. That Do you have an know. example of that? Um, the Michael Flowers shooting mm-hmm. um, and the moment when reporters started kind of digging into his criminal record yeah. and just kind of the question about why is his criminal record being kind of brought up at this point. Right. It's not like the, the cops knew his criminal record in the moment. Yeah. Right? So there's no, it's irrelevant information. Yeah. And, and feeling like there needed to be a better way mm-hmm. um, to approach mm-hmm. this and like a really community focused relational relationship based process um, mm-hmm. and, and way of doing things. So, Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, and and I know that the South End really is uh, historically underserved. You're probably covering just the day to day, and you see it maybe better than most. How do you feel city services around infrastructure? You know, transit, just access, uh, generally speaking. How, how do you? What's the state of that right now in South Seattle? In terms of transit access, well, transit or just access to services. I mean, either one, really, or both. I mean, there's a there's a lot of things that um, go down there. I think the thing that I would say about that is is really the disconnect between like city services and the South End is really it's it's really relational. I mean, the city tries to do a lot in the South End, and there are a lot of services. I mean, the first light rail line that we got is from the airport straight through right. straight down MLK. Um, but really, I think what's been missing is is more of that kind of building the relationship from the ground up rather than coming and saying, hey, we're going to do this thing. And, you know, it's basically kind of figured out. But, you know, give us a little feedback on on little ways we can adjust it here and there on the edges and, you know, wanting to see things, you know. I, um, and so I, I really think that's, you know, what, what's needed more is a little bit more going to the community before you bring in the service or going to the community before. Uh, the thing that I'm thinking of right now is the the discussion about turning the number seven into a rapid ride right. line. And a lot of people that I've talked to are kind of feeling like that structure and that system is really about commuters. Um, it's really about getting people downtown as quickly as possible. And it feels really counter to what like the number seven has really served the area. Tell me more about that. Well, the number seven, I mean, it, it, the number seven, I think has really been operating as a neighborhood bus. It's been operating and getting people up and down, even though it goes from downtown Mm -hmm. through the international district down MLK, it, it's something that has, has really kind of served folks in the South end, getting around the South end and a rapid ride what I've heard from a number of folks is that a rapid ride line through the area feels kind of counter to what what the community needs. Do you think that's a reflection of some of the changes occurring in the demographics uh, and the the influx of more maybe uh, affluent professionals that are coming into the southern part of the city? Yeah. It's a leading question. Yeah, no, that's all right. It's just what strikes me, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, hard to say. You know, the South End is you know, the, the most diverse mm-hmm. uh, area of yeah. the city. And I, I think it would, I, I don't, I, I would be reluctant to put words in the mouth of the community. Um, mm-hmm. But what I, what I think I would question, what I would want to know is kind of that, not just balance of serving that community that's starting to grow there, but I think 
a lot of people are asking how much of this is not only to serve the people, you know, that the, the, the gentrification that's happening there and, and people that are pushing into that area now, but also preparing for the future of more of that, preparing yeah. for the future of yeah. more people being in that right. area and displacing the existing community. Right. Yeah, you get into weird issues with transit where, um, you know, transit is fundamentally good for things like pricing, costs, apartment costs, right? But not in the micro sense, right? If you put a transit stop somewhere, rents for a few blocks around go up. Yeah. But overall in the city, the more transit is, the lower rents are, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a, almost like a paradox where, you know, folks will often fight transit, which indirectly makes rent go up, yeah. <laughs> right? Well, in transit, new, new transit stations um, uh, and major transit changes, you know, like you said, it really affects the neighborhood. And I'm thinking we had a story that uh, went online today about the SeaTac Center because um, mm -hmm. Emerald doesn't, you know, we, we cover Southeast Seattle, but also uh, into the South King County area. And the SeaTac Center uh, is this complex of businesses that are predominantly owned and operated by people of color, East African immigrants, um, you know, Muslims, and they're diagonally right across the street from the Tequila International Boulevard light rail station. And not only that, they're the second major business. Oh, and, and this business complex, the SeaTac Center, the city of SeaTac is owned the property, bought the property, and is now selling the property to a developer out of Chicago mm -hmm. um, or in the process of, of, of considering a bid mm -hmm. from a developer in the city of Chicago. Just a couple blocks north of that, just a couple blocks in your you're in Tequila, yeah. um, and there's another very similar business center that's getting displaced for a justice center. And I, I really think a lot of these communities feel like, the, you know, there's this transit center, it suddenly becomes really attractive and all of a sudden yeah. this yeah. existing community, and in this case, a community that really worked hard to serve their community and really make, yeah. you know, a positive difference in a place where people can come do their shopping, eat a meal, drink coffee, and, and be in community is suddenly getting taken over for, you know, who knows what is going to come in, whether it's a, you know, whether, you know, this, the cities are able to do as they promise in the case of SeaTac and try to maintain some of that community there, which is a tricky proposition when you know that it's going to be rebuilt and so those businesses have to go somewhere. Will they be able to come back right. when the new building comes in? Or whether we're just paving the way for like a Panera or yeah, something like exactly. that. Right. And that's the fear, right? That's the fear in just about any development. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. All right. And and what do you think, what do you guys have coming up? What's, what's on your radar? What are you really thinking about in the next few months? Thinking down the road. I mean, we're going to continue, I think, to keep examining kind of the issues of gentrification and displacement and what that does to a community. And there are a number of ways that I'm thinking of and a number of factors. I mean, we people talk about gentrification and displacement kind of in, in this larger sense. And we say gentrification and we can all nod our hands and say, oh yeah, gentrification, that's really bad. But I think when you get down to uh, different populations and different details, there's really unique stories mm -hmm. that um, are happening there. And so a piece got on the displacement of seniors is like a really unique story in terms of, you know, in the South End, 
uh, a number of seniors are, are, you know, really tied to the Southeast Seattle Senior Center. Their housing is really unique in that a lot of them, when they get displaced, they end up moving in with family. Um, the Seattle Housing Authority has programs for seniors, but specifically for, for seniors, people over, I think, 62. And there's just these long waiting lists. And so I think each of those, you know, as we look at different populations, I mean, there's displacement of different kinds of, you know, commercial industries in the area. And there's, there's gentrification of different populations. Um, and there's really, you know, gentrification, like I was just talking about with the SeaTac Center uh, that we've been reporting on. You know, that's a really unique situation um, and a really specific population that's having a unique story. And I think going forward, I just kind of want to keep asking, you know, what are the what are the populations that we haven't looked at and what is uh, mm. their unique mm-hmm. story? That's great. Hey, so we like to end every show with a segment we call, If You Care About, You Should. Yeah. Fill in the blanks. Yeah. If you care, I, I really think if you care about your community, if you care about how your community is uh, growing and changing for better or for worse, I really encourage people to be as engaged as possible in community-based nonprofit journalism. And I'm thinking of the International Examiner, Real Change, South Seattle Emerald, of course, The Globalist, um, and really getting down to those. And, and also just being aware of, you know, what are, what are the media outlets that are like really serving your very specific neighborhood mm-hmm. you know I, li- I live in burian and so i'm i'm you know following the b-town blog and, gotcha. and kind of keeping track of that so trying to you know get as hyper local as you can yeah really what's going on really double click yeah and get in there i have this may if i may oh, I, have, yeah. I have this great i have this great example of this actually i used to live in west seattle mm-hmm. and i used to take the and i worked in pioneer square at real change and I took, i'd take the water taxi because it was just like two blocks and i could you know i could drop my car off down by the water and i was coming back and there were just as i was walking off the ferry the road is just covered with police cars and there's police officers stationed all over the mm. place but it didn't look like a like a like a, a an emergency it didn't look like a disaster or, or a crime or anything like that it it just looked like there was kind of like a, a group and i walked up to a police officer and i i said what's going on and the guy goes president of bulgaria is here and i go oh and then i walked away and i thought that seems really weird i went is he pulling my leg? I hadn't heard about anything about this. So I got home and I immediately hopped in and I looked on the Seattle Times and I looked on Como and I looked on a couple places because like President of Bulgaria is in Seattle and I couldn't find anything. And then I just typed in West Seattle blog and it was just their top story. And so that's what, when I talk about like, you know, really in on your local, they're they're sometimes just tapped into things that I, you know, larger publications. Because it impacted the lived experience of the people in West Seattle, whereas the President of Bulgaria, minor, minor, I'm putting air quotes, but minor country, Maybe Seattle Times just doesn't even have the bandwidth to cover that. And, and I'm not sure. I mean, you know, Seattle Times, and I can't remember. Seattle Times may have covered it later, or made it, but but this particular, the West Seattle blog in particular, was just on it, mm. you know, immediately mm-hmm. and and really responsive yeah. to it. Yeah. So that's that's a great story, man. Yeah. Well, hey, Aaron, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. We'll uh, we'll get you back next year. All right. Thanks. That was Aaron Burkhalter. Thanks so much for doing a great interview to Aaron. Check him out and check all of the great work out being done at the South Seattle Emerald. And to Aaron's point, just check out your local neighborhood journalism. Support it. Read it. Get smarter from it. Benefit from it. All music done by the Subcons. Dope opening poetry sample by Anthony McPherson. Sound such as it was by myself and Naboo. This has been a Cascadia Underground production. And as always... 
I'm your host, Ian Martinez. My favorite. We'll see you next week.